Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 57 for April 7, 2019. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. Mr. Gantz's only strength is BB weaknesses. He failed so far to impress large sectors of the Israeli public opinion. He doesn't present a detailed agenda and is escaping all the time towards generalities. How is this election different than all other elections? That is the issue of the legal cloud that Netanyahu is facing that I think are going to impact the calculations in the post-election period. So stay tuned, put the tray tables in the upright positions and buckle your seatbelt. I think there's turbulence ahead. That was Ehud Yari, Lafer International Fellow at the Washington Institute, and David Mikovsky, the Institute's Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and Director of the Project on Arab-Israeli Relations. They joined Israeli journalist Tal Shalev for a policy forum in Washington, D.C. on April 4 to preview Israel's 2019 elections, the likely outcomes for Israeli politics, and the implications for Israeli-Palestinian relations and for American policy. Coming up, we'll hear their remarks after this. This is Gaith Al-Omari senior fellow at the Erwin Levy Family Program on the U.S.-Israel Strategic Relationship at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and prompting the policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. Ehud Yari, a Lafer International Fellow at the Washington Institute and a longtime Middle East commentator on Israeli news television, spoke first. You can follow Ehud on Twitter at Ehud Yari JLM. That's E-H-U-D-Y-A-A-R-I-J-L-M. Good afternoon. Under strict instructions not to pass 10 or so minutes, I will try to fire some bullets, assuming that the uh, audience is pretty well versed in the goings of the Israeli uh, campaign. So I would like to go beyond the nasty campaign. We have had nasty campaigns in the past. This is perhaps nastier, but I remember a few of them when Shimon Peres had an Arab mother and was accused of having uh, shares in uh, a telecom company, Tadiran, etc., which were no less uh, acrimonious and uh, vicious. These elections are basically one thing. This is a referendum about Bibi Netanyahu. That's what at stake. This is how the campaign is conducted. This is what the result will tell us about his uh, uh, fate. Probably we are holding this kind of referendum uh, about Bibi while it's clear to many, not to all, that probably we are coming to the end of the Bibi era because of the uh, charges, the indictment, which is uh, waiting for him uh, around the uh, corner. Bibi, Bibi himself was planning to retire in two years. That was his game plan, and to move to the presidency. Uh, replacing uh, President uh, Rivlin when he retires. Uh, and for that purpose, his plan was to get uh, Mr. Yair Lapid, then not united with General Gantz as his foreign minister, 
securing the votes of his party to move to the president's residence. This plan is no longer uh, possible, but it gives you an indication about the frame of ma uh, mind of Bibi just before the indictments were uh, announced. In bracket very carefully, I will say, that when you discuss Bibi in the context of Israeli domestic uh, politics, it's a team. It's Bibi and wife. They act like a team on these issues, not on strategic uh, issues. They act as a team, and it will continue to be like this. This is the way it is, at any rate, in the uh, current campaign. Referendum about Bibi, because Bibi has taken over the liquid. Liquid, which is lost, if you want to put it this way, the liberal wing of the liquid. Almost nobody remains from that wing of the party, the old-style revisionists, the people who came originally from a, a business party, businessman party called uh, 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 the General Zionists, they are no longer there, either out of politics or somewhere uh, else. This party was swallowed by the prime minister, and this is why the future of the Likud party post-Bibi is a huge question mark. It seems Trump and Putin were trying to assist Bibi uh, in uh, different uh, ways. Others did the same, like uh, Bolsonaro from Brazil, some East European leaders. But most, most interesting, I'm offering it as, a, more as an anecdote, most interest, interesting, the Gulf states. Some of the Gulf states, my information, were encouraging the split of the Arab list, the unified Arab list. Because by splitting the uh, Arab list now into two, uh, there may be a possibility that the bigger one of these uh, uh, two parties will be a part of some arrangement with a future coalition if Mr. Gantz and his allies make it uh, to power. That's very clear. That was the reason of the split. They said bye-bye to the Islamists of the Islamist movement. They said bye-bye to the ultra-nationalists supported by Qatar, who are running now together, barely reaching the minimum a bar of uh, four seats uh, in the Knesset, and they are getting ready to the possibility that they can play uh, in the Israeli uh, coalition formation uh, process, exacting a price in terms of the Arab minority uh, rights, budgets, etc., uh, etc. Et they are very clear uh, about uh, this uh, uh, intention. Mr. Gantz, Mr. Gantz's only st uh, strengths may be harsh, but, and I apologize, this is the way I see it. Mr. Gantz's only strengths is BB weaknesses. He failed so far to impress large sectors of the Israeli public opinion. He doesn't present 
a detailed agenda and is escaping all the time towards generalities. And then you are <clears throat> at difficulty to find what exactly is the difference between the policies that he's offering and the policies that uh, Bibi uh, is uh, pursue, pursuing. And the main drive for the blue-white party led by Gantz is the disgust that many Israelis feel now towards their prime minister because of all the charges and the stories and uh, whatever is being printed daily in the uh, uh, media. The timeline is July. There will be a hearing where Bibi's lawyers will be uh, given the opportunity to present to the Attorney General their uh, reservations uh, concerning the draft indictment. And the Attorney General, who used to work for years for Bibi, as Secretary of his uh, government, very closely with Bibi, will have to decide whether he have to change some of the uh, clauses of uh, the three indictments presented uh, uh, so far. Uh, Bibi's intention, although, although he doesn't speak about it, but we assume, and I think we are on safe, solid ground here, Bibi's uh, uh, plan is to see whether post-elections, if he is entrusted with forming the next coalition, something that President Rivlin would not like to do but may have no choice, his plan is to try and see whether he can change the legislation concerning the immunity law, whether he can introduce what is called the French law. You do not indict a sitting uh, uh, elected uh, uh, official. Or down there, there is also the option of a plea bargain. You retire from politics. We will forgive you. That's on the table. Again, not publicly, not officially, but it is uh, on the table. How serious the charges are? Heated debate in Israel. And I'm not <clears throat> hesitant to say, to share with you, sorry, my own, I'm not a, a jurist, but to share with you my impression that it's not going to be easy to prove, for example, bribery on the case of the, uh, we call it case 4000, the case of Israeli Telecom uh, Bezek. It's not going to be easy. And a trial like this can take for quite a few years. Because, just to give you one illustration, the defense will bring journalists and politicians and publishers to expose the very tricky relationships that exist between politicians and publishers and journalists, etc., in order to uh, illustrate that Bibi basically acted almost like everybody uh, else. Big question mark. We will not know that before April 9th when we have the elections is the whole issue of the submarines uh, and Bibi's share in this company of his uh, cousin here uh, in America. This did not mature yet into a, uh, an uh, indictment. 
Now, where are we going? My hunch, no more than that, my hunch that uh, most probably uh, Bibi will be uh, invited by the president to form the new government. In order to get there, it doesn't need necessarily to be the largest party. It's enough if 60 plus members, half the Knesset plus one, uh, recommend him to the president and say that we are, uh, we would be happy uh, to participate in his uh, government. Is he going to get the 60-61? A lot depends on the threshold because there are almost half a dozen parties on the right who are saying in different voices that they prefer to go to government with, uh, to coalition with Bibi, who may not necessarily make it to the Knesset. And then you are talking about loss of right-wing votes, which can go easily, can run into hundreds of thousands of votes. Changes the map. So if a guy like the present uh, 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 Minister of the Treasury, Kahlon, doesn't make it, it's a problem for Bibi. If the ex-defense minister, the illustrious uh, Mr. Lieberman, doesn't make it, and his votes are in decline according to all the polls, that's a problem for Bibi. And there are others I'm not going to go down uh, uh, the list. The main issues that should uh, be the topic of the elections are nowhere. There are no real discussion in these elections about Iranians in Syria, the nuclear deal, Palestinians. Gantz, for example, is not even willing to say the word Palestinian state, lest he will be considered a left-winger. And the left is going bankrupt steadily since Oslo 93. So they are dealing with all sorts of other issues, apart from the personal recriminations and attacks, but do not touch uh, the uh, real issue. I would say that the main uh, issue at stake is the uh, intent of the right to reverse the judicial revolution instigated years ago by Supreme Court Justice, Chief Justice uh, Aaron Barak, which allowed the Supreme Court to take position on every issue, overrule Knesset laws, uh, etc. And the lady who is leading this campaign, Ayala Chaked, the Justice Minister, she is now part of the uh, new right uh, party with her partner, Mr. Ben Bennett, although she is becoming fast the senior partner. That's her agenda. And it's important because is, if Bibi finally has to go, Ayelet, who was here in the Institute some time ago, Ayelet will rejoin with or without Bennett, will rejoin the Likud, and she will become a serious contender, contender for the leadership of the party and the premiership. Now, the best uh, outcome of the elections is the uh, option of a grand coalition between Likud and uh, Blue-White, plus Labour, plus others, but mainly between these two uh, major forces. The question is, 
whether uh, Mr. Gantz and his allies, in case Bibi has the lead, will accept to serve in a government headed by him. Mr. Gantz, until very recently, was not excluding this possibility. As we get closer to elections, he's trying to sharpen the pencil, but it's there. And the question is whether they will uh, accept uh, Bibi to be prime minister or will try to trigger a, uh, an internal uh, battle within the Likud where the different lieutenants of Bibi uh, will be offered to stab him in the back in return for A, B, C, uh, O, D. I don't have a good signals as to how they will respond to such a possibility. Oh, sure, some of them really want to replace Bibi as prime minister. But I'm not sure that any one of them can take over the party and lead it towards a grand coalition uh, with guns. Politically, strategically, this kind of uh, coalition would probably allow Israel to take more initiative in the context of the uh, conflict with the Palestinians and other issues, I don't see a major departure from the broad lines of the Bibi uh, strategy. If it is going to be a narrow right-wing Bibi-led coalition, and remember he can stay in power until convicted in the last instance of the Supreme Court, which could take years, legally if the partners accept that he'll keep serving while he's standing trial. This is the Israeli uh, law. If it is a narrow uh, right-wing uh, coalition, I think the drift towards a more nationalistic approach, the pressure uh, towards uh, taking all sorts of unilateral uh, moves uh, in the West Bank and uh, 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 East Jerusalem uh, will grow, and certainly we will see uh, the attempt to reverse the judicial revolution, as it's called in Israel, of um, uh, uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice uh, Barak. For the left, and I'm finishing here, for the left wing or center-left coalition led by Barak, they will need Bagan sorry. They will need I wanted Ehud Barak to come back to politics, but he didn't. They didn't allow him. Anyway, for a, a, a center left coalition, they will need probably both defectors from the right wing bloc from one or two of the smaller parties and some assurance, some deal for support uh, by the one hour party that I mentioned uh, uh, before, which is based on what used to be the Israeli Communist Party. Uh, that's people who, in '48 distributed leaflets all over the West Bank supporting the establishment of a Jewish state, according to, to the uh, partition. But they're, of course, very critical about the way uh, Israel goes now. So out of these three scenarios, I think the best that Israelis at least should hope for is that they will find a way to work a, a grand coalition 
It was Bibi's preference before the, the indictment. I told you about Lapid going to the foreign ministry and uh, etc. Only the results, the numbers, will tell us whether it's uh, feasible. And one last point that I have to make is, uh, although I'm wary of the reaction of David Pollock, I would be very, very careful reading the polls in Israel. I'm coming from the media, from the biggest television network in Israel. I see how it's done. I see how it uh, undergoes cosmetic changes before it gets to air. I see how the different pollsters coordinate before they publish the uh, results. And most important, between 20 and 30, maybe 35% of Israelis at this point have no clue how they are going to vote in five days. So the pollsters have no clue. They make assumption on how the undecided will break, but it's only assumptions. That was Ehud Yari. Next to speak was Tal Shalev, the chief political correspondent for the leading Israeli web portal, Walla News. You can follow Tal on Twitter at TalShalev1. That's T-A-L-S-H-A-L-E-V-1. First of all, I want to point out that uh, this week, uh, The Economist had a cover story under... Uh, the headline King Bibi, um, which is basically a headline that was already given in May 2012 um, to the cover story of Time magazine. Um, and looking between these stories is basically the story of Netanyahu and where we stand in this election. And I totally agree with Ode that this is a referendum on uh, Netanyahu's rule. Um, but this has been the most dramatic and eventful election both for Netanyahu and both for the country. If we just, I'll just summarize quickly some of the things that happened. We had uh, the Zionist Union break up. We had Bennett and Shaked st- start a new party. Uh, we had this big bang in the center, in the center left, this, uh, the blue and white party formation. We had scandals against Benny Gantz. We had an indictment against Netanyahu. We had a lot of fake news, many things that resemble or resonate to things that happened in uh, the U.S. in 2016. But the two most important developments from Netanyahu's point of view were, A, this the creation of uh, the, the Blue and White Party and the alliance between um, Lapid and Gantz, and the other one, of course, the Attorney General's uh, recommendation uh, to indict him. Netanyahu was very much concerned of these two events, and when he started off the campaign, he was panicking about both of them. And eventually, when we look now back, we see that basically neither of these two major developments um, did not really impact Netanyahu's situation. Um, First, we had um, the Gantz and Lapid uh, um, agreement, which brought in uh, Yalon and Ashkenazi. um, And quite a phenomenal one, should say, that within three months, Benny Gantz basically turned into a candidate uh, for being a prime minister. Um, He has this very impressive all-star team behind him with, uh, they like to campaign with the slogan. They have more than 117 joint, uh, years together. They have 117 years of security experience. So that is aimed at undermining, um, what was supposed, what is one of Netanyahu's cards and that is Mr. Security. And Benny Gantz also got, when he started out, phenomenal approval ratings. Um, he was the first 
person in years um, who actually uh, was uh, polled as suitable and got close to Netanyahu on the question of uh, how suitable is someone to be prime minister. So for the first time, one should say there was a real alternative uh, for Netanyahu, but the Blue and White Party didn't hurt Netanyahu. They were Part of the idea was to create a center-right party, and that's why they brought in many right-wing elements, Yalon, who brought in other uh, players who are very right-wing. It didn't hurt Netanyahu on the right. Basically, most of the votes, I guess, probably 90% of the votes that are going to blue and white are from the center-left bloc anyway, and they didn't really succeed to move votes um, from the right. The other thing also that happened was the attorney general, um, the attorney general's three uh, indictment recommendations. And that also went by like a brush on the shoulder of Bibi. Um, and the, the thing is that Netanyahu is probably stronger than ever. Um, many Israelis and especially his base, um, his base is very, very admiring um, and he's willing to forgive him. Uh, for the corruption and is willing to buy his narrative and has a very low trust in media and in the law enforcement bodies after hearing basically um, three years of constant incitement against them. And he also had a very big difference between 2015 and 2019, and that was the Trump card. Um, I believe that the Trump card uh, is extremely important in understanding why Netanyahu is still so strong, despite the fact that he is about to go, he might be about to go to jail, as Eud uh, explained, because Trump gave uh, Netanyahu for the first time, basically, a real diplomatic legacy. Um, up until um, the Trump election, up, up until Trump arrived at the White House, Basically, Netanyahu had eight years of the, with the Obama administration, which basically we can define as they ended with a status quo. Um, Netanyahu, uh, President Obama did, did not establish a Palestinian state, as Netanyahu warned time and again. And Netanyahu, for his part, did not annex any um, territory of Israel, as his right-wing base uh, would like him to. Um, he also failed with his battle to against the Iran deal during the Obama years. And then comes Donald Trump and basically gives Netanyahu three very major diplomatic um, gestures or moves in a row. And he actually gives Netanyahu something that he will go down in history for, um, the embassy and the Golan Heights for sure, the Iran deal. Um, I guess we'll have to wait and see where he goes down in history on that. But um, from the Israeli public's point of view, um, which generally, basically, the Israeli public is much more favorable of Trump than, I guess, anywhere in the world. Trump is more popular here than any, anywhere in the world. But for the first time, Netanyahu has a real diplomatic legacy to present um, to the public. And it comes along with, as I would mentioned, also the Putin card, the relationship. There's a reason that uh, um, Netanyahu is tampering this relationship with Putin. And for many Israelis, um, his diplomatic skills now and the fact that he is one of the longest serving leaders in the world and also one of the more more respected leaders in the world, I think. Um, and the change that the Trump administration has brought to the whole vibe around Israel, the fact that we don't have on a daily basis um, a um, State Department announcement denouncing the settlements and we don't, Netanyahu is not constantly fighting 
with the United States, but on the contrary, he has his best friend in the United States. This gives um, a very strong card for him, for his base. And you hear many people, by the way, even people that didn't vote for Netanyahu in 2015 and never voted for him ever say, well, Bibi, he's a different league, and they, how, there's no way that Benny Gantz can pick up the phone to Donald Trump and pick up the phone to Putin just like Bibi does, so we feel safe if Bibi is there, and Gantz is inexperienced. So that's one of the reasons that Netanyahu wasn't harmed. Another one of the reasons that Netanyahu wasn't really harmed is that Netanyahu has been running a brilliant campaign. It's been vicious. It's been nasty. It's been very low. It's been criticized and um, denounced for many uh, rude and dirty tricks. But it's been a good and effective campaign, and it works very good. The Gantz campaign, the blue and white campaign, first of all, had about two to three weeks in which they were kind of stumbling and they were trying to learn how to work together. And it's less effective, less direct. Um, it takes them much longer to react to events. Uh, so I think that has been very crucial. But we are approaching the final days and the campaigning is almost over. I think as we speak, the TV stations are publishing their last polls. And I totally agree with uh, Eud that Israelis do Israeli polls. Um, I hear from many of the American pollsters who work here in Israel, they're shocked at how many polls we have and how unprofessional they are. Um, they give uh, the journalists much to talk about. They kind of set the momentum, but they are not necessarily credible. And we should always remember uh, that the polls were wrong in 2015 in Israel and the polls were widely wrong in 2016 in the U.S. and in the Brexit. So the polls should be taken with a very limited advantage. So again, I agree also with um, Eud that it's all open. And while the fight is between the main fight and the main battle is between Gantz and uh, Netanyahu, it will be defined and the final victor of them both will only be defined by the small parties because it's about the blocks. Um, and even then, only then will the games begin. But what we are seeing now is that Netanyahu is in kind of a dilemma in the final stretch. We're four or five days away from the elections. And the Blue and White Party, Gantz and Lapid, are around campaigning that they need to be the biggest party. They need to be the largest party, even though that is not true. Um, it won't, it won't, by law, it won't necessarily help them if they do not have a block, a majority of the 120 elected lawmakers. But they're campaigning that they need to be the largest party. The strategy behind that says that if they succeed to defeat Netanyahu by a wide margin over five seats, it will create such a, um, aftershock in the Israeli political system because it will be the first time in a decade that someone actually beats and defeats Netanyahu. Um, so they're playing on that. And so they're trying to open a gap from Netanyahu. And Netanyahu is trying to close, doesn't want that gap to open. Uh, but on the other hand, the larger Netanyahu gets, the smaller the parties on the margins, uh, the smaller parties that he wants to build his coalition with, they get smaller and many right-wing votes can go down the drain. So Basically, we haven't seen Netanyahu launch a Gewalt campaign um, yet in its full power. He hasn't yet started um, what we call drinking with a straw, uh, the mandates from uh, the other parties. Um, by the way, Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid are 
out in the open saying that uh, voters of Meretz and uh, labor voters should vote for them uh, because that's a way to replace the government, even though that's not true. That's just not the system. So it's going to be very interesting until the last minute. And it's also going to be um, not only about the, what the results will be on the 9th of April at 10 o'clock when we get the exit polls, it will actually be only because we're talking about very small parties which are on the, within the margin of error of 10,000 or 15,000 votes to pass the threshold, we might be waiting 36 hours until we get the final votes called really to know what the situation is. And even then, we will not necessarily know who the winner is. Um, just a few things I think should be pointed out for the day after. Um, first of all, there's a new player in the block, a new kid on the block, who is changing all of the traditional block calculations that we are used to make uh, making, and that is uh, Moshe Feiglin, who is leading a right-wing, very liberal party called Zehut, in English identity. Uh, Moshe Feiglin was, uh, in the past, um, Netanyahu's worst nightmare in the Likud. Uh, he's... Um, but he's posed, and he and Netanyahu basically spent four years uh, between 2009 and 2013 to try and kick him out of the Likud. So he did, but now Feiglin is back in a different form, and he's extremely popular. Um, he presents uh, the the popular part about him is that he's uh, supporting and calling for legalization of pot, which um, is very popular here in Israel. Um, and the other aspects of his ideology are a, a very harsh, libertarian, strong capitalist, ultra-strong capitalist agenda on the economic side, and uh, I would say a messianic approach, very right, radical right-wing messianic approach um, to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But the pot smoke um, makes him very, very popular, and he will change the traditional block um, divide because Netanyahu will try and do everything to keep him out of the coalition. It's a player, a very, very uh, radical player that he does not want in the coalition. The other thing that could happen the day after the election or two days after the election is if President Trump presents his peace plan or starts talking about peace again, um, that will play into the Israeli political mess in a very dramatic way, I guess, um, and it could uh, make Netanyahu's job, if he wins and if he gets the recommendation from the president, it will make his job, um, his goal, um, his first goal, his initial goal to try and form a right-wing government, um, very difficult. Another thing that will happen the day after the election is that we will start seeing investigation materials uh, published in the media. Netanyahu was very wise to ask the Attorney General not to pass the investigation materials from his um, investigations to the other uh, lawyers who are representing other people or other people who are accused or are going to be accused in his investigations. Um, he asked um, the Attorney General not to transfer the material till after the election because he knows that things are going to come out there that are going to be very embarrassing. So, for instance, this week, um, Eud's channel, Channel 12, had an expose. It had a story about a, it basically had a, a document which was written by Sarah Netanyahu in 2013, 
in which she basically gave, is giving directions um, and directing and ordering someone, we don't know who he is, uh, it's in her handwriting, um, how to defame and to basically lead a defamation campaign against Naftali Bennett. Uh, from my understanding, inside the materials, there might be many, many more embarrassing things like this that could make Netanyahu's job of forming a coalition also a bit more complicated. And there is this new investigation um, about which kind of links Netanyahu's to the submarine affair um, and his relationship and his shareholding with his cousin, which it probably will, it's not an inv investigation yet at the moment, it's only in a preliminary stage, but it appears it's going to turn into a full-scale investigation. And if there's a link between Netanyahu and, this, and the submarine affair, it's a totally different story um, than the one uh, we've been talking about in the past uh, with the other three files. Last thing um, is that Netanyahu is very concerned about what's going to happen the day after at President Rivlin. And basically, he's been waging a very negative campaign trying to force Rivlin that, to say that he will be giving him the task to form the government and he will be ignoring the legal processes against Netanyahu. Um, by law, the law is very vague. What, who, who Rivlin needs to give the ticket to? The law says that he needs to give it to the candidate that has the highest chances of forming a new government. And tradition says that he gives it to the candidate that can rally up 61, a majority of the uh, uh, 120 elected uh, lawmakers. But what happens if you're at 60-60? And what happens if nobody succeeds to get a majority? Then Rivlin might have consultations, and maybe he will decide for another course of action. And maybe he will decide that the person who uh, won the largest party is the one who will get the chance. Um, Netanyahu and Rivlin have a very, very bad relationship. Uh, and Netanyahu is very much concerned about this. Um, last October, he went so far to accuse Rivlin of cooperating and conspiring with another Likud member, Gidon Saar, to basically oust Netanyahu after the election and put some other Likudnik um, instead of Netanyahu. Um, I don't see that happening. It's probably much in Netanyahu's um, mind, but he is definitely not assured. So he definitely doesn't want to he doesn't want Rivlin to have a reason to give it to Benny Gantz. He really wants to have it for himself. That was Tal Shalev. Next, we'll hear from David Makovsky, the Institute's Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and Director of the Project on Arab-Israeli Relations. You can follow David on Twitter at David Makovsky. That's David, M-A-K-O-V-S-K-Y. On the surface, this seems like almost uh, a Seinfeld election in the sense that it's not about a policy decision. But that's not unique to Israel, uh, and it's not unique to this election. It's not about what do you do in, in, uh, with Hamas tomorrow or housing prices tomorrow. It's, uh, it is a referendum, as my colleague said, on Netanyahu's leadership. But I would say not to be fooled that this is, yes, one of Israel's dirtiest elections. Uh, it's not, in history, as Abe pointed out, there have been others. But I think what's what's interesting here is the subtext. And 
Awood may be right that maybe 25% haven't decided, but I think it's a narrower, I don't know if we disagree on this, Awood, but a subset about the blocks. Because what you've heard from my colleagues is it is, is about the blocks. It's not just about which party is the most, but who gets to 61? Who could cobble together enough of these parties to have a bare majority in 120 member Knesset? So I think here, if you think of it that way, then what, what you really see is that I would argue the number of people that could actually go from the center left, to center right, or center right, right to the center, it, maybe it's 10%. And that the whole <laughs> is about reaching that very narrow subtext. It's about trying to reach emotional pitches for some of these waivers. And, and, the, and you'll see this with the, with the way the campaign has gone. Uh, so it doesn't mean the 90% don't have a view. I would just argue in terms of the blocks, they're locked in. They might have disagreements. Do they vote for labor or, you know, or, or, you know, blue-white? Do they vote for Likud or Bennett? But there's not that many waivers from the two big blocks. And, um, you know, Tal mentioned Fagelin, this crazy hybrid party of a libertarian who wants to build the third temple. Of course, there is such a thing as two mosques that are there. So, you know, you blow them up. Will you have World War III? He doesn't raise that. But this, he's one of the only people who's actually moving people from block to block. So I would say the broader point is that most people are locked in on the philosophy in terms of they either feel comfortable on the right and they feel comfortable on the center. What is striking, though, and here is the three things I want to accomplish with this talk. What are the, the, the conceptual divide between center and right? A couple observations on the elections, and what does it mean for the United States the day after? So I would just say in terms of the first point of the conceptual differences, first is you have to talk about the decline of the left. In 1992, labor and merits together were at 56 seats. Now, according to one of the latest reputable polls, they're at 19 you could argue 18, 17, but it's nowhere near 56. Why has the, the left been in decline? I think it started with the second intifada. I mean, in the 90s, people forget, but there were polls, 65% of Israelis thought a two-state solution was at hand. 55% thought it was justified to have two states. But the second intifada, the rockets after disengagement from Gaza and Lebanon, Lebanon and Gaza, and then three wars with Hamas in Gaza from 2008, December 2008, through 2014, have all taken a toll. And so the, the big mega story in Israel, I think, in a certain way, has been the decline of the left. So what does the center and the right stand for? What are their foundational principles, thinking, outlook? What demographics do they count on? I would just say on the right, Netanyahu has indeed refashioned the Likud. A lot of the more liberal elements of the Likud left uh, after the Gaza disengagement, went to the center party of Kadima, and uh, both now it's his, it is definitely his Likud. I would say one, one of the things he's done is he's taken advantage of the demography. And, you know, who are, 50, in 1998, 52% of Israelis identified as secular. In 2018, 47%, 5% drop. According to Rivlin in 2015, if you look at the first grade of Israel in 2015, only 38% of first graders are part of secular families. 
there's been a demographic shift, and it has enabled the Likud to broaden what I would call the coalition of the outsiders. That's something Begin started in 77. Traditionalists, Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox, settlers, post-state immigrants, Mizrahim, who are also traditionalists, and also came after the state. So he's broadened that group, and the de demographics has been cutting for him. Also, Netanyahu very much identified an antagonism to an old elite that he identified as the courts, that they were secular, liberal, and he, as is like a wedge issue, has gone after that sense of resentment and grievance. And has talked about, um, you know, setting back, as uh, Ayud pointed out, the Aaron Barak uh, kind of judicial revolution to liberalize. Another kind of point of his worldview, which we've seen in this campaign in spades, is casting aspersions on those insufficiently, insufficiently skeptical of Arab intentions. The idea that you could take three chiefs of staff and saying they're left, they're left wing, uh, that they have a hidden agenda, and it, it, it might seem laughable, but then when you look at the polls and say the all-time low in the number of blocks on the center left was 53, and with three chiefs of staff and a Mandelblit report on three... Um, uh, you know, allegations of corruption, including bribery, it's only moved the needle five seats. Three chiefs of staff, three counts of corruption, and according to the polls now, you know, five. Could it change? According to Haaretz, it's back to 53. Um, anyway, we'll have to see. But that's been another premise. And finally, I would say um, another premise has been, well, a couple more. One is the ability of Netanyahu to delink the Palestinian issue from broader kind of uh, some rapprochement with Sunni Arab states in the Gulf. That has been a, a, a theme of his. Yeah, I could do outreach to Asia, you know, with with uh, China and India. They're they're amoral. That they, they all they want is money and commerce. I can do this. I could do the outreach to Africa. The Palestinian issue is is marginal. And uh, as was mentioned before, another piece of his kind of worldview, don't, don't alienate Trump, whatever it takes. And we could talk about that later. And finally, the key point is it's okay to build outside the blocks, outside of the settlement blocks, inside the barrier. There are now 105,000 settlers outside the barrier. Gaza was 8,500. This is 105,000 and growing. Uh, and I go through more numbers later. I just want to move on. Uh, I don't want to take up too much time. So what has been the premise of the center? Peace is not attainable now. But the status quo is not good either because what's not at stake is peace, but what is at stake is Israel's character as a Jewish and democratic state. That is the central idea of the center in my view. Therefore, don't settle outside the barrier because you don't want Bosnia. You don't want a situation that uh, you cannot separate in the future. You want to maintain the viability of two states even if you can't do it tomorrow. So where does that leave us? And here, I just want to deal with the international piece here and uh, deals with the observations of, on the election. One is the power of incumbency. And not just incumbency, but the, the ability of Netanyahu as an incumbent to attract other incumbents on his behalf. Some will call them enablers. But he has been like a, a maestro at a, at a piano board uh, playing this, knowing where to go, who to go to, how to go to. Go to Trump, get a declaration of annexation on the Golan Heights. Go to Putin today 
and uh, demonstrate that you have this unique relationship which is needed, which is popular in Israel because you have over a million Russian immigrants and about who's going to handle Syria, given the Iran issue. Putin's in charge. You've got to have a relationship with Putin. And that doesn't hurt him. Try to drink, in the words of Tal with the straw, uh, the voters of Mr. Lieberman, who has traditionally had a lot of those Russian immigrants, although he's having a harder time with the second-generation Russians. Hard to be an immigration party 30 years after an immigration uh, because these people feel Israelis. And uh, he's also been able, been effective in getting summits even with leaders from Greece and Cyprus uh, to talk about a pipeline to Italy, even though there's a lot of issues left over. Pompeo came and blessed it. So there are a lot of leaders that seem to very much uh, the timing to help uh, Mr. Netanyahu, although they will deny that that's their intention. And finally, um, the Warsaw meeting of Arab Gulf leaders was also so helpful to him. And the leader of Brazil, Netanyahu went to Brazil. <coughs> now the leader of Brazil came to Israel. So that is something an incumbent has. Yes, I agree that uh, Gantz has run a lackluster campaign, but it's very hard to compete with an incumbent who has powerful friends abroad who want to see him get reelected. Now, I will just say, you know, to, you know, to Reese, just about the, the disciplined campaign of Netanyahu. It's been vicious under the, under the belt, but uh, it's been disciplined. Uh, it's been disciplined in the sense that he's tried to hit one overarching theme, that Gantz doesn't have the experience to be prime minister, but he's had his surrogates not just question his experience. They kept using, he's not baked, he's not baked, but they're questioning his basic competence that he's not stable. And so, but he's been disciplined at hitting one overarching theme, and the other side has not been. The final point, I, um, I just, but, you know, like I said, there is drama left in this election because small parties, they're more on the right than on the center. Uh, these parties could... Uh, kind of fall under the, the electoral threshold of 3.25%. Uh, it would be ironic. Mr. Lieberman was the one who raised the threshold to keep some of the Arab parties out. Now he might be the victim of the very rule that he installed in 2015. The final point I, section I just want to make is the issue of what does this mean after the election? What is it, where does it go? What does it, where does it mean? And, and here, I think very, and, and what does it mean for the Trump peace plan for the United States? I think that all these, any scenario you slice it, it doesn't look good for the Trump peace plan, I must say, because, look, if Gantz does win and he pulls this out somehow, he's not going to want a plan that has a high risk of failure. Abbas says he's already against it. He will want to say, hey, you know, you've been able to craft something with Netanyahu for two and a half years. Sit with me. I want something that's got a very high probability of success because this is central to me. So I think that puts it on hold. Now, if the right wins, that will, they will be the most nervous about this peace plan, and he will be more beholden to the right than he would be normally because of the indictment with the legal cloud he's under. He will not, not want to anger them, and not unless he can guarantee them the following, which is if you go for this peace plan and Abbas says no, then you start annexing parts of the West Bank in, in the wake of Abbas saying no. That sets the predicate. That's Bibi's kind of way, which is don't jump ahead of Trump, don't jam him, but talk about what flows from it in the aftermath of a failure. But, you know, Trump isn't there to fail, and if he feels he might fail, I know this is Rob's view, that he will uh, not put it forward at all. We'll see. But clearly the rights, the right is going to want some sort of uh, a trophy uh, for being with him, uh, and they will want some sort of annexation. 
And he, what he wants is a French law uh, that means you cannot indict a sitting prime minister and that there will be an overriding law that the courts will have actually no say in overriding uh, legislation in, in the current session. So is there a trade-off here? You know, a French law, an overriding law in return for annexing Malaya Dumim or something like that. We shall see. Could we all be surprised by a unity government between Netanyahu and Gantz? Anything is possible, uh, of course. I think the Senate, though, will be very hard-pressed to join this. Uh, Gantz has, you know, said over and over again, the public doesn't believe Gantz, by the way, but uh, according to the polls, but that he's not going to join Netanyahu, uh, because certainly if there's a hearing, uh, which is supposed to be in July, and a formal indictment, he's going to be the first to jump ship. These are people who's, who are united against the referendum on Netanyahu. Are they going to prop him up? I tend to think Netanyahu will think sequentially, which goes like this. I would like to lock in the right first and foremost. That's the way I've done it in every other election. I want to lock in my base. The base is critical for him. Certainly if he's under, under pressure, he'll want that. He won't be able to totally trust the right. Bennett, Lieberman, these people hate him. Uh, he knows that. He knows that. They know that he knows that he knows that they know. But the point is, is that, is that if he could lock in this French law, I think that would be good, but he doesn't want to have Bennett as, as his defense minister, who's to his right, and uh, he doesn't trust Bennett at all. So what about a sequential approach, which says, first, lock in the right. Then I have my base, but I can't fully trust them. But I will leave open the defense ministry and maybe the foreign ministry. So the door is open to Gantz down the road. This way, I don't have to give Bennett the defense portfolio or, uh, or the foreign ministry portfolio. I, I kind of wink at the center that I'm, I'm trying to be a big tent guy. And maybe after my hearing, and I've got the French law anyway, I will make the case to them quietly, and their supporters maybe, some of them will make the case, we got to save the country for Israel's democratic future. And they will believe that it's better to be inside the tent than outside it. I realize there's a lot of assumptions here. I'm always worried when we have more assumptions. But I think that these are three scenarios to think about. What I think is the least, the least likely is that Netanyahu quits. I think if he's going to do a plea bargain, he's better off to do it from the outside than the inside. He's better off to do it inside as a, as a government official than on the outside. Uh, you could quit once, as one of uh, the top Likud people say, which he did in 99. It's hard to quit twice. I don't think he quits. I think he, he stays at it. But this is an election like all other elections. We're on the eve of Passover, you know, so how is this election different than all other elections? That is the issue of the legal cloud that Netanyahu is facing that I think are going to impact the calculations in the post-election period. So stay tuned, put the trade tables in the upright positions and buckle your seatbelt. I think there's turbulence ahead. This has been Near East Policycast from the Washington Institute. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. Production assistance this week comes from Corey Francis. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Please like and rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it to help others find Near East Policycast.